Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment law news. I'm Glenn Hayes, National Head of Employment Law at Irwin Mitchell. Hi, and I'm Jo Mosley. I write our blogs and newsletters and keep the team and our clients up to date on what's happening in the world of employment law and HR. How are you, Glenn? I'm good, thank you. Not bad. Sporting my new glasses today, Joe. So I, uh, I've had to bite the bullet, sadly, and get some reading glasses, which mm. disturbs me greatly. <laughs> I did a presentation yesterday and I and I was like, I'm going to have to put my glasses on to read it. So it's, I don't refer to notes very often, but if I did, I would have no chance. So I thought I'd better take them along with me. Is that the first time you've had to wear glasses then? You're not short-sighted yeah. at all? No. I've had, I've had every, every other bit of my body's fallen apart, but my eyes have always been spot on. And now they're going too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sadly. Never mind. Never mind. Right. <laughs> I think we've got quite a lot to get through today, haven't we? So yeah, probably we have. What are we talking about today, Joe? Well, last week, the government made a number of announcements about changes that it wants to make to employment law. And it promoted these as part of the so-called Brexit benefits now that we're no longer a part of the EU. And it's they were sort of using much of the same rhetoric that we've got used to. So the idea that it wants to get rid from the statute book of unnecessary and burdensome EU laws. And I thought it would be helpful to chat through what the government wants to do and how it will impact on employers. Great. All right. So let's start then with the retained EU law bill. And I think we discussed this when we first started those podcasts. Did, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's still making its way through Parliament. And the idea is that the government, or rather civil servants, would trawl through everything on the statute book that's there because of an EU directive. And ministers would then decide what they were going to keep or get rid of by the end of this year. So, although I'm not doing a proper quiz this time, I'm going to ask you a few little questions. Okay. Do you know how many pieces of legislation the government said it would have to look at to meet the deadline? I think it was originally a few thousand, but I think it then went down to about 600, didn't it? So, No. Yeah. <laughs> so initially, you're right. Initially, they did say there were a few thousand. So they said there was going to be 2,400. Right. But that had doubled by May this year. And the 600 that you're that you're referring to are the 600 that it's now decided to get rid of but we'll come on to that in, in a second yeah so i think there's about 5,000 at the moment that it's wading through and obviously that's a ridiculously tight timeline to achieve that well, no chance no absolutely and the bill was written in a way that made it operate almost like a ticking time bomb in that it included a sunset provision which meant that all EU-derived legislation in the UK would disappear from the statute books at one minute to midnight on the 31st of December this year, unless the government made a positive decision to retain it. And obviously, you know, there were loads of concerns that that would mean that legislation would be revoked by default, possibly in it inadvertently, because there just simply wasn't enough time for the government to properly consider, you know, 5,000 odd pieces of legislation. And obviously yeah, well, it, we did warn about this, Joe, if you remember, yeah. as did quite a number of other people in fairness. But we did say that that was never likely to happen. Yeah, it was certainly something that we were worried about, wasn't it? But the good news is that the laws 
won't all disappear now by default. And the government has identified about 600 laws that are going to be revoked by the end of this year. And the rest are going to stay on the statute books and give the government time to reflect and decide whether to make any changes to a whole raft of legislation, not just that relating to employment law. So in relation to those 600 laws that are going then, Joe, are any of those relevant to employment law? No, they're not. I've had a look through the list. The only significant one is about posted workers being able to enforce their rights. But of course, that is disappearing because posted workers only apply to EU employees that are working in other member states. And as we're no longer a member state, that could obviously disappear from the um, statute book. There's nothing else of any significance there at all. Do you think is that? I mean, that's sort of good news, isn't it? So the government will be able to tweak our laws as they no longer have to comply with EU directives. But obviously that needs to be done properly. Yeah. We're going to have to look at each law, decide whether it does the job and it could whether it could be improved or clarified and then do something about it if it does. I, I can't think of any really that they'd simply want to revoke in their entirety. I definitely can think of a number that they'd want to change and improve. Yeah. But the problem is that all these laws really, whether they've come from Europe or not, they're all embedded in the UK employment framework. So whilst employers might grumble about some laws, to be honest, we're sort of used to them now and we, you know, most employers by and large understand what they're required to do. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, I don't think they're going to be changing too much, but we'll, we'll see. Okay, so We've outlined the framework and I thought that it would be a good idea now to look at some of the specific laws that the government has said that it wants to reform and consider what they might mean for both employers and their staff. So shall we start with our favourite, the working time regulations? There's plenty of yeah, stuff yeah. there. there is. So what would you change in relation to the working time regulations then, Glenn, if you were the decision maker in government? Look, there's a few things. I always find it weird about the working time regulations that there's no punishment for people breaching certain parts of them, really. But Mm. that issue aside, I think the main issue clearly surrounds holiday pay. So um, it's a really complicated area of the law. There's been a huge amount of litigation on it. You know, I'm talking about whether things like overtime and commissions play a part in it. You know, what accounts to people's normal working hours? You know, the the government have really left employers to sort of flounder around and interpret these things with the help of the tribunal system and the court system. And it hasn't really reformed the work and time regulations, even though they're aware that they're deficient in lots of respects, really. So holiday and holiday pay will be a massive issue for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So you mentioned pay and the government have suggested a couple of proposals regarding pay. So they're not going to reduce the amount of paid leave that people get. So people will still be entitled to a minimum of 5.6 weeks leave. But what they want to do are make some technical changes around that, which could in fact be quite significant. So there's two different types of leave in the working time regulations at the moment. You've got the original four weeks that were required under the EU directive which were brought in in 1998 and then some years later the government decided to introduce an additional 1.6 weeks leave to reflect the number of bank holidays that we traditionally have in in the UK so that meant that people get 5.6 weeks but they the way in which they've been drafted means that they are treated slightly differently and perhaps 
Glenn, you could summarise how those two different types of leave interact and how they differ. Yeah, sure. So if you think about these cases that have come through, take overtime, for example, and whether a person who's working regular or frequent overtime is entitled to that as part of their holiday calculation. Because it's an EU-derived decision, effectively, what the case law has come through and effectively said is that Yes, where that overtime is regular or frequent, i.e. becomes sort of normal part of people's pay, if you like, Mm. then for the first four weeks, i.e. the European part of the leave, that will be their normal pay for that four-week period, but it doesn't apply to the 1.6 additional weeks that the UK government give or beyond, you know, if you, if an employer gives a contractual allowance, for example. Yeah. And so that if I have overtime for that part of the holiday, then I would just get my day's pay without the overtime included in it. So, you know, allowances, bonuses, commissions, all those types of things are affected by those decisions. And, you know, the, the, the European argument was because was that anything that dissuades a worker from taking annual leave, Okay, that's contrary to the health and safety drivers behind the directive. So um, the four weeks that that, that derives from the directive, that's that's what that that aim is. Now, it's always seemed odd to me that, you know, it was either applied to it all or it didn't. But, you know, that's what the case law says. And there's also things like it also comes into the context of things like where you have to carry over leave in certain circumstances. So I'm thinking about people who are on long term sick leave. Those rules only really apply to the four weeks as well. So employers can ignore the ECJ's rulings for the remaining 1.6 weeks if they want to. I mean, in fairness, many don't, but, you know, if they want to, they can. And if you take a big employer that's got thousands of staff and they've got and they're regularly working overtime, then as an employer, you might want to do that to avoid having to pay an additional premium, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the government thinks that that is administratively complex. So if for those employers that do want to differentiate between the four, you know, the, the directive four weeks, if you like, and then the remaining part of holiday. And basically, you you do actually need quite a good payroll system in place that recognises when someone has taken four weeks leave so that they can then reduce holiday pay to reflect their basic pay. Well, or you do it manually, Joe, which is an absolute nightmare. For well, it would be, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. I can't imagine. But what the government are doing is they're considering several options on that, one of which is allowing employers to pay the entire amount of annual leave at a worker's basic pay, which will mean effectively that for lots of workers that are, you know, as you say, receiving overtime, bonus payments, even allowances, they could see a significant fall in the amount of holiday pay they receive. Not sure that's going to be the most popular thing that the government brings in, in fairness, given that this is likely to hit people probably at the lower end of the earning spectrum in any event, mm. uh, rather than those higher up who probably just get a salary um, yeah. rather than are paid by the hour, for example. So, yeah, uh, let's see what happens in relation to that. I think yeah. a change of government might have a bit of a, a bearing on that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Although I suppose if they change the law now to reflect that, then any new government that comes in is going to have to then change it again. And it's a question of priorities, I guess. But yeah, I just suppose it wins when we have a general election, really, because, yeah, you know, if it, if it comes through in a conservative government, then yeah, fine, I take the point. But if if it doesn't get through and you're looking at Labour to introduce it, if assuming they get into power, I can't see it happening. So. No, I can't either. No, absolutely. 
The other interesting thing is that the government wants to reintroduce rolled up holiday pay. And before we talk about what their suggestion is, perhaps you could explain what rolled up holiday pay means, Glenn. Yeah, sure. So um, rolled up holiday pay was very common up to 2006 when the uh, European Court of Justice said it was unlawful and the UK government reinforced that message. It's actually a case called GridQuest. Um, it's an early Mitchell case, actually, Joe. I don't know whether you were around. I don't and remember I that one. I certainly was. But rolled up holiday pay is mainly used for casual workers who don't work fixed hours. So the idea is that, so take a typical example, Joe. So if I'm paid £10 um, an hour by my employer, okay, and I'm effectively going to get a rolled up holiday entitlement on top of that at 12.07%, okay, effectively what it means is I will be paid uh, £10 uh, plus a premium of 12.07%, which will make my hourly rate £11.20 effectively. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the way that that would work. Mm. And that the idea behind that was I'm supposed to put that aside and use it when I want to take holiday. Now, the reality is that that didn't really happen because it was because it came in the sort of normal pay packet. It was sort of swallowed up in living expenses and not used to go on holiday. And the whole idea behind it was a good one, really. Um, but I'm not sure it really worked in practice. No. Can you just briefly tell people where the 12.07% comes in because that will become relevant later on because that's one of the government's proposals. Yeah, effectively it's the percentage derived from the 28 days annual leave effectively that they were required to get under UK law. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what we can agree on is that the issue around rolled up holiday pay and you know, how lawful it was has created a huge amount of confusion amongst employers. Because as you say, we've got the government ECJ on the one hand saying you shouldn't be rolling up holiday pay because it acts as a disincentive to take holiday. And yet in the UK courts, we've got an EAT decision which said that employers who did it anyway would be able to offset those payments against their liability for holiday pay. So there would still be a liability, but the fact that you paid it would basically mean that any uh, any compensation the employee was entitled to would be reduced to nil, yeah. provided the employer had done one of several things. And that was to make it clear that a percentage of their pay did reflect holiday pay and that really should be set out both in their contract of employment but certainly in their pay slip so yeah, there's no the, ambiguity and the thing about that joe using the example i've just said it should say glenn hayes 40 hours at 10 pounds an hour um glenn hayes rolled up holiday payments 40 hours times 12.07 percent equals whatever and then add the two together and then obviously apply tax so but i don't think that happened a, a lot of the time to be fair I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I. I just don't know what happened in 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 previous times, if you like. But um, it certainly would be quite an easy thing for employers to do, just to sort of earmark that amount as as holiday. The interesting thing, though, about that proposal is that it's considering, or certainly one of the options that it's looking at, is allowing employers to roll up holiday pay for all staff, so not just those that are working under casual contracts. I can't see that's a good thing for permanent staff or be popular at all. Could you, Glenn? No. So there's a couple of issues with that, Joe, in my view. So obviously I mentioned about the work and time regulations not really having any sanction for people who don't apply it. So, for example, if I don't take my 28 days this year, 
is there any sanction on Erwin Mitchell for failing to encourage me to do so? No. The only sanction comes if I try and assert my statutory right to take leave and they refuse me, they subject me to a detriment for doing so. Mm. So anything that allows an employee to to avoid having to take holiday and effectively make a choice about whether they want to take holiday or receive paid as an alternative and work, I'm not sure that's a great idea to me because, you know, we are in a cost of living crisis and it, I think it would be quite easy for people just to load up on the hours. Yeah. And it, and it could have massive impacts on people's health and well-being. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And I suppose the difficulty would be for those people that, albeit they may well work irregular hours, but they may also be employed throughout the year. So they don't yeah. really take any significant breaks. And, you know, what's the incentive for them to take a break if they are, as you say, short of money? You know, you'd, you'd hope that there would be some obligation put on an employer to actually say, look, you do need to take some time off. You've been paid for holiday you know at least take four weeks off so that you've got some sort of benefit and, and a decent break from working but the difference now we're on a use it or lose it so the yes. employees the employees encouraged to to use that leave by virtue of the fact that if they don't it's gone yeah so you can only pay it in, in circumstances where somebody leaves their employment so if that changes i think that's a fundamental change in the landscape yeah, yeah, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Got any more thoughts on holiday pay and rolled up holiday, Glenn? Well, look, I think um, from, from my point of view, anything that simplifies holiday pay has got to be a good thing, but there's, it clearly needs to be thought through quite carefully. And I think this holiday pay throws up all kinds of issues for employers and employees, and but for employers, and I think a, a good public consultation on it is probably required. Yeah, I agree. So, Joe, what's happened to the consultation the government started at the beginning of the year about the holiday allowance and pay for term time and casual workers? That's the plan, isn't it, that allows employers to prorate holiday allowance for part year and irregular workers to reflect the number of hours that they actually work following the Supreme Court decision in Brazil that we covered quite extensively last year. We're still waiting for a response, basically. The consultation period has now closed, and I'm my best guess is that we're likely to find out what the government are planning to do with that in the autumn. Okay, there's one other proposal that the government have made about the working time regulations that I'd like to discuss with you. So the government doesn't appear to be changing the rules about the 48-hour maximum number of hours that staff can work each week averaged or are going to fiddle around with daily rest breaks, weekly rest breaks and the special protections in place for young workers. But what it does want to do is to remove the need for employers to keep a daily record of the hours each member of staff works who hasn't opted out of the 48 hour working week. What do you think about that? <laughs> I think it probably just reflects what happens anyway I don't know any I don't know of any or many certainly employers that do that anyway I think what employers tend to do is they tend to rely on other records such as national minimum wage records to demonstrate the hours people have worked mm -hmm. again that's enforced by the health and safety executive and they there's a fairly relaxed approach taken I think so I haven't said that I don't think employers need specific records for most workers they can just rely on other data I, yeah I, 
just don't think it's a big issue. No, no. It's interesting you say that, though, because the government thinks it is a big issue and they reckoned that businesses are going to save a lot of money by not recording daily working hours. Any idea what how much money they think UK businesses will save each year by not having to do that? I thought you said there was no quiz. <laughs> um, <laughs> well... I haven't got a clue, um, but I, whatever the answer is, I think it will be way too high for uh, you know the actual reality. So I'm going to say fifty million pounds. Well, n- double that, a billion. No way, no way. A billion. They reckon that it's going to save a billion oh, 50, pounds. Fifty million. Oh, you said double, fifty. I think 50, you said five hundred million. No, I was going to say your maths needs a bit of work, Joe. It, it probably does actually. <laughs> But that aside, no, it's one billion, one billion each year. And I've got wow. no idea where they get that figure from. Wow. And I think they've massively overegged it, particularly based on what you've said about your experience of record keeping by employers, i.e. they're not really doing it or certainly yeah. not in this way. OK, well, my maths aside, let's move on very swiftly to the other proposal that they're looking at, which is Tupi. And what they're going to do is make it easier for employers to directly consult with staff if they don't have a union or employee reps in place on a TUPE transfer. And that's only going to apply to employers with fewer than 50 employees and transfers affecting fewer than 10 of those. What do you reckon? Well, it sort of sounds like they're extending the changes that they made for micro businesses a few years ago. So it could be quite good, I suppose, uh, for smaller employees. It takes away did, a bit of burden. Yeah. Did that make much difference, though? The, you know, the the previous not really uh, reduction. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, from, from my point of view, a- anything that makes the duty consultation process easier, that's got to be welcomed. But I think there's bigger issues with duty than just. I that, do as well. Frankly. I mean, one of the biggest ones that people talk to me about is this sort of question about harmonisation. So even simple things like not being able to align payroll and all sorts of stuff like that is difficult right. following following a tupy transfer. And I would have thought that would be a better focus. I think that the various governments have looked at tupy over various years and they've looked at it and thought we really need to simplify this and try and issue some statutory guidance. Okay. And it's not, it's never really happened, has it? So it's just, when was the last re- change to the regulations? 2006. So, I, you know, there's there's all kinds of issues with Tupi, I think. So, yeah, I, I can't I, remember but, when it was. It was but, certainly but this, a good few years ago. This might help smaller employers, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, on one tiny aspect of it. Yeah. Before we finish, I just want to mention that the government has launched a consultation about these issues and is looking for businesses to respond to them. They've got a deadline of the 7th of July to do so. And if you're a business and you've got thoughts about this and would like to give the government your your views on what it should be doing about holiday pay, cheapy and all the rest of it. Keep it clean. Keep it clean. (laughs) Yeah. let us know. We can then send you a link to the consultation document or if you subscribe to our monthly employment law updates, then you'll get that anyway. Great. Well, look, that's it for today, Joe. If you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary, then tune in in a fortnight. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Bye bye.